0: 35 this morning, back into our systematic study here, verse by verse, going through the, the book of Matthew. And we're in that section that relates to parables, that's where we are, in Matthew chapter 13. Very uh, pivotal point in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ as he's uh, teaching parables. Lord, I pray that you will give me grace to explain the text and to apply it in a way that is profitable for us as your people and Lord, if there's anyone listening that is not yet a true believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would work through the truth uh, to bring them to the point of true faith, where they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, uh, the true Deliverer, who delivers us from our sins and gives us a, a place in the kingdom, ultimately. So, Lord, we commit our study to you now. praying pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, note the uh, outline overhead. We have worked our way through, as I say, to the parable section uh, in chapter 13, the parables of the king, and a little bit more as far as background, as far as the outlay of the book. The first 10 chapters, we have Christ's messianic credentials presented, uh, showing he is the true uh, Messiah. And then, uh, what is the response of the nation? Well, led by the religious leaders, it was largely one of rejection. Yes, the masses were following Christ, but it was, they were fickle crowds. In the end, we see in John chapter 6, uh, they went away, so much so that Christ said to the disciples, "'Will you also go away?' So, very fickle. Rejection of Christ by the nation, chapters 11 and 12. And that leads us into Christ's teaching on parables, as we see in Matthew chapter 13, which was really indicative of judicial judgment. Well, the parables serve two purposes. They uh, concealed further kingdom truth from those rejecting Christ. And at the same time, they revealed further kingdom truth to his true disciples, uh, I hope you're among those here this morning, true disciples. He has further kingdom insights for us to learn uh, from the parables. The parables are about the mysteries of the kingdom, uh, plainly stated in chapter 13, verse 11. They're about the mysteries of the kingdom involving kingdom truth previously hidden, but now revealed to true disciples. The kingdom is a premier theme in the whole of Scripture. And I get excited studying about the kingdom. You know why? That's where we're going, right? That's where I'm going. That's where you're going. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, last stop, the kingdom. We're headed for the kingdom. And that's exciting to study the kingdom and what it's going to be like living intimately with God in His eternal kingdom. So everything and everyone is moving towards kingdom reality. As I say, it's a major theme in Scripture. Some would say the major theme. In the end, there will be those who share in the kingdom, that is believers, and there will be those who will be cast out of the kingdom. In the end, it's all about the kingdom, whether you're going in or whether you're going to be cast out. So the great issue in the Scriptures is all about who will eventually be in the kingdom. And we see a lot about that in these parables as well. Now, in matters of interpretation, I often say this, keep Israel Israel, keep the kingdom the kingdom, and keep the church the church. And if you do so, you will not be confused, and you will be found holding to sound doctrine and rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible tells us uh, to study earnestly so we might rightly divide, make those divisions in Scripture that are accurate all kinds of confusion we talk about you know people who hold to a form of theology that sees you know a, no distinction between Israel and the church they end up baptizing babies well you end up there because you are not rightly dividing the word of truth uh, when you make a direct parallel between circumcision and baptism you've got lots of problems number 1 only male children were baptized but now we're or, or circumcised now we're baptizing baby girls. There's a great inconsistency there. It becomes very confused when you don't make proper distinctions between Israel and the church. Well, when we talk about the kingdom, there are really two kingdom concepts addressed in Scripture. And uh, note what they are here. I'm just kind of giving some review here. Number one, God's sovereign kingdom rule. God is always on his throne. He's on his throne this morning. Praise God. That's always in place. And we see this truth brought out in Psalm 145, 13, for example. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This reality never changes. God's sovereign kingdom rule. But then there's also the emphasis in Scripture on a special messianic kingdom rule. And we find this, for example, in Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33, where Mary is told, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a special messianic form of the kingdom, all under the umbrella of God's sovereign kingdom rule. I mean, he's always on his throne in that sense. But we're talking about, when we talk about the messianic kingdom, we're talking about the Messiah sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. And that has not yet taken place. Matthew has the messianic kingdom reign in view throughout. It is the same Messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. Like I say, keep the kingdom the kingdom, and you, and you won't be messed up in your theology. If you get into allegory, you now have all kinds of subjective problems. Where somebody, Well, I think it means this, and allegorically, I think it means... And no end of confusion, especially when we come to the parables. In the parables, the kingdom continues to mean the kingdom. Be consistent. Now, uh, as I say, the kingdom always means the Messianic kingdom, in which the Messiah will one day rule... Uh, from David's throne in Jerusalem. Uh, note these uh, kingdom markers, these messianic kingdom markers. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, we have messianic kingdom prophecies. We heard about that recently, right? Yes, you were listening to Children's Moment. Yes, that's the Old Testament. Then you have John the Baptist and Christ come on the scene offering the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom was being presented to Israel on the condition of repentance. Alas, the nation rejected. And that's where the parables come in. The parables are doing, dealing with the kingdom interlude, the period in between, uh, related to kingdom delay. The kingdom's been put on hold. Now God is sovereign overall. He knew exactly how Israel respond. Nothing is really changing His overall sovereign plan. But He did offer... The kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. They didn't repent. So we now have this, uh, this interlude, this delay, and that's what the parables are dealing with. Get that in your mind. He's dealing with, with truths that relate to the kingdom, related to this interlude, this period in between. And of course, finally, will come the actual kingdom at the second coming. And we are praying for that. Uh, your kingdom come. Your will be done. The kingdom has not come yet. So many people want to confuse the church age with the kingdom. No, we are dealing with that period in between. And we're working for the kingdom, in a sense. Uh, People who get saved are going to be in the kingdom. And so, yes, we still have a kingdom mission in that sense, but we're not in the kingdom. We're working towards that. We're looking forward to that. We're praying uh, to that end. So the first parable brought forth in Matthew 13... Dealing with further kingdom truth is the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. This is what I call the mother of all parables, in that the other parables build on it as seen in Mark four thirteen. Jesus says, If you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand all the other parables? Well, this introductory parable emphasizes that only a remnant of those who hear the kingdom message will be saved. And the defining trait of those who receive the word with a good heart is that they bear fruit. It's the defining reality for true disciples. Yes, there are varying degrees of fruitfulness, but the truly saved who will have a place in the kingdom are those who bear fruit. We are not saved by fruit. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is expected to bear fruit. Now, this is a lordship concept that is borne out in the whole of Scripture. Uh, Go to Hebrews chapter 11. I see see the nature of saving faith is the same in every dispensation. Uh, Yes, Revelation was progressive. But the nature of a saving faith is the same in every dispensation. See Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, it goes all the way down through the different eras. One did this, one did that, but it was a functional faith that bore fruit. The great issue with Israel is that they rejected the messianic lordship of Jesus. Truly believing on Christ as Lord and Savior results in a changed life that yields fruit. Notice what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The issue is enter into the kingdom. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You're not going into the kingdom. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The issue is their practice in relationship to his lordship. That's the whole issue in this text here. It's not merely enough to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. He must actually be believed on as personal Lord, which affects the practice of one's life. If Jesus hasn't changed your life, you're not saved. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You have a new nature. You have the Holy Spirit, if you're a true believer, and that will affect your life. Now, I believe that one of the greatest errors propagated in the church age has been the emergence of what I call a lordless gospel. It's really a false gospel. It claims that saving faith does not necessarily result in a changed person or a changed life. I argue strongly that that is patently false. False. It claims one can believe on Christ as Savior, fire insurance, while rejecting Him as Lord. But in contrast, the Bible only knows the truth of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see this many places, just by way of a sample here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Notice what Paul says. Do you not know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the ultimate issue. Are you going into the kingdom? And Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. What's he talking about? Do not be deceived. As the lordless gospel people are deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You're not this anymore, though. Such were some of you. You were in all of these different categories. This is how you live. This is is your practice. But now it's different. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 John... And John wrote the gospel belief, right? He's certainly not going to contradict what he's saying in the gospel belief, uh, the gospel of John. But in First John, he gives evidences that would show one is truly saved. And he says in First John 2, 3, and 4, by this we know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? Well, if we keep his commandments. Some people want to say, you know what, by this we know, we know him. It just But the flimsiest of professions, doesn't matter whether we obey him, doesn't matter whether we keep his commandments. That's that's totally optional. But that's not what John says. He says, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him. I know him. And there are those. I know him. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. And don't dare challenge me. I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Here's a great theological point. Justification is an event. Sanctification, a process. The two must be distinguished, but can never be separated. God does not justify whom He does not sanctify. And He does not sanctify whom He does not justify. And there's a verse that puts this all together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. By one offering, that's the cross... By one offering, he has perfected forever. I love that. If you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're perfected. That's your position. That's your position. But then the rest of the verse says, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That is also a reality. If you know the first part, if you've been perfected, justification by faith then God is at work in your life to sanctify you, to set you apart, to make you more like Jesus. So one cannot claim the first part of this verse if the last part is not true. If we know the truth of justification perfected forever on the basis of faith alone, then the truth of we are being sanctified will also be true in our life. So we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone It bears fruit. Now, by way of groundwork uh, here in Matthew 13, the Matthew 13 parables, by way of groundwork to these uh, parables, which give us as true disciples further kingdom insight, Jesus made it very clear that what defines a true personal spiritual relationship with Him is the fruit of obedience. And I think this is very significant. You know, we put our chapter divisions in here to help us find our way around in the Bible. But really, we didn't initially have those. And this segues right into chapter 13, where Christ said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, mother. This is the one who has a true personal relationship with me. Who is it? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus is very consistent. Very consistent with what he said in Matthew chapter 7. Very consistent here. And this leads us in to the parables. Well, we now come to the second parable in Matthew 13 and pick it up here at verse 24. So let's do that. Matthew thirteen twenty-four. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept it, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, it is significant to note that the word another here uh, is a Greek word which literally means another of the same kind. There's a different Greek word that would mean another of a different kind, but the word another here means another of the same kind. So the parable of the sower and the soils is the parable by which we understand all the others, and they all relate essentially to the same subject. Namely, all the parables deal with kingdom truth and how it relates to this period of delay. And we will see that here in this parable. Now, the kingdom of heaven has as its parallel the kingdom of God. Uh, In the Gospels, uh, Matthew was writing to Jews. He liked to use the phrase uh, kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of God because the Jews didn't like to uh, use the name God. They didn't want to, in any way, be irreverent, so they they kind of stayed away from the use of of the name God. But there's a parallel here. Kingdom of heaven uh, is parallel to kingdom of God in the Gospels. The kingdom of heaven refers to the rule of heaven on earth, in other words, the coming messianic kingdom. Note it doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is, but rather the kingdom of heaven is like. This simply means that some truth relative to the kingdom is being brought forth. Now this parable will be interpreted by the Lord himself in verses 36 through 43, and so we will deal with it at length there, Lord willing, next time. But for now, we'll touch on a few main points. Now the seed in the first parable was the word. But here it represents people. The field is the world. The enemy is either the devil or false teachers. And often the devil works through false teachers. The wheat are true Christians. And the tares are counterfeit Christians. I'm going to jump ahead just for a moment to Christ's interpretation to show you this is true. Christ says the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the wicked one. We didn't have to wonder about this, Christ told us this is what it means. Now, the emphasis here is on the secret tactics of the enemy, as we note there, uh, when he begins here, he talks about how this enemy is sowing, uh, and uh, while everybody's sleeping. The emphasis here on the secret tactics of the enemy. The enemy opposes the truth and comes to damage. What is happening here in the field in a stealthy fashion under cover of darkness to bring about subtle infiltration. Now the Old Testament saw the kingdom as a glorious worldwide empire, but does not reveal the mixed process involved in getting there. Christ is here teaching that while the kingdom indeed has been delayed, yet at the same time the kingdom program is still going forward in the sense that God is still bringing people to himself, who will in the end be the sons of the kingdom. Now, they are not practically in the kingdom yet, but they are positionally in the kingdom, meaning they will one day share in the kingdom. Now we see this other places in the New Testament, this principle, where positionally we are one place, but practically we're at another place. For example, in Ephesians 2.6, Paul says that right now, presently, the believer is seated together in heavenly places in Christ. How many of you think that we're in heaven right here this morning? Maybe we have have a little taste of it. Yeah, okay. But we're not in heaven. I, I hope I don't have to, you know, go too far emphasizing that point or illustrating it. But anyway, we are not there physically. We're not physically in heaven yet, but positionally, we are there. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So it is with the kingdom. We are not physically in the kingdom yet, but as the sons of the kingdom, we are positionally already there in the sense that we have our place in the kingdom. And this is, for example, what we see in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom. That's positionally where we are. The great issue during the time of the kingdom delay is determining who will ultimately be a son of the kingdom and who will not be. Ongoing right now is the playing out of decisions involving who will be in the kingdom and who will not be there. Verse 26. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. God plants his people in the world and the devil plants his people in the world. This is the devil's strategy. He seeks to plant his people right in the same context, as as intermingled as he can with God's people, so as to disrupt the work of God. The tares are counterfeit Christians who give the people of God so much trouble. And we can't blame it all on the tares. God's people give each other plenty of trouble too. But anyway, we're talking about the tares here this morning. The thing about tares, you see, the thing about tares is they they look so much like the wheat that until the time when the fruit, the grain heads are brought forth to maturity, you can't really tell them apart. Once again, the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit is seen in the fruit. But it's very hard to tell them apart, right? Thankfully, we have a caption here, right? The wheat and the tares. If we didn't have the caption, what's the wheat and what's the tear? They're very close in appearance, right? Yeah, very close in appearance. Now, the tares are thought to have been uh, what is commonly called darno, uh, which, while closely resembling the wheat, is actually a poisonous weed. Again, the ultimate issue is who will be in the kingdom, depending on how they have responded to the, the message of God's word. Note uh, these uh, emphases in relationship to the kingdom. We have the word of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, and the sons of the wicked one. And of course, where you are, whether a son of the kingdom or a son of the wicked one, depends on how you respond to the message, as we saw last time. The devil does some of his most effective, that is, diabolical work, through counterfeit Christians. They are not real, but for a time, they appear as real. You know, you can fake it pretty good for a while. Judas was a good example, right? Talk about faking it till you make it. He never made it, but he faked it. Faked it right to where we make him the treasure of the group. They're real. They're not real, but they appear as real for a time. And as fake Christians, they infiltrate the ranks of Christians and seek to influence us in ways that are not spiritually healthy. This is one of the great strategies of the devil. Warren Wiersbe says, we must beware of Satan's counterfeits. He has has counterfeit Christians who believe a counterfeit gospel. He encourages a counterfeit uh, righteousness and even has a counterfeit church. At the end of the age, he will produce a counterfeit Christ. Satan is a counterfeiter. That's what he does. And he does it to the end to deceive people. That's what he's doing. One of the devil's great strategies as the arch enemy of God is to plant false Christians in the context of God's people to influence and seek to deceive us, to get us off track and thereby unfruitful for God. And might I say, the one thing I admire about the devil is that he's very good at what he does. And I don't really admire it. But but just to say, he is good at what he does. And this is how it goes. The devil knows how to work the angles. You know, the whole world knows thou shalt not judge, right? Oh, yeah. You bring out some sin here. Thou shalt not judge, which is kind of like thou shalt not think, thou shalt not discern. Uh, Just check your brains at the door and don't make any call whatsoever. Yeah, right. I mean, we ought to read the following verses in that text in Matthew 7. But Christians are told, don't be judgmental. And so we kind of back off and we have a, a soft touch when it comes to satanic infiltration. We wouldn't want to take too strong. stand. I mean, after all, they're going to say, that's unloving. And so what happens is they confuse not being sinfully judgmental with proper discernment. We are to be fruit inspectors while leaving final judgment to God. God alone is final judge. But we are to be discerning. We are to be fruit inspectors. Paul had to really give the Corinthians a good talking to because they were being infiltrated by false teachers. And he says here, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15, and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Hey, how does Satan come? Pitchfork? Fiery red? Mean? Evil-looking? No, 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 no. He comes very pleasant as an angel of light. I'm here, I'm here presenting the truth, the, the light. I'm here for your good. He's very deceptive, like I say. He's very good at what he does. And then Paul continues, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers, God has his ministers, but so does Satan. It's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Man, they look so right. And, and what they stand for seems so right. Whose end will be according to their works. It's all about Deception. The name of the game for Satan and his ministers is deception. And as I say for the third time, they are very good at it. You often for a time can't tell the difference between a true Christian and a counterfeit Christian. And yet in the middle of this context, God is building a kingdom people. Here called the wheat. And praise the Lord for that. Because if it wasn't for God doing what he's doing, yeah, yeah, the devil would have his way. Verse 27. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? This is pictured as no ordinary case of weeds. This is a case of many weeds that takes the servants by surprise, as if totally unexpected. Now in the agricultural world of Jesus' day, if someone wanted to maliciously cause destruction to a person's livelihood, they might secretly sow tares in their field at night. And this is a picture of what Satan is doing in God's world. This is the work of the enemy in an effort to sabotage the work of God. Verse 28, he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? The tares are a problem. So the question is, what should be done about it? And the servants raise a question. uh, Do you want us to go and gather them up? Let's get the tares out of the field. Verse 29, but he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the servants are told to not try and uproot the tares, not at this point, lest in the process they also do damage to the wheat. Instead, they are to let both grow together until, until the harvest, which is a picture of coming judgment followed by the kingdom, which will happen in conjunction with the second coming. Now, often in Scripture, harvest is a metaphor for judgment which is here pictured as a fiery judgment for the tares, while the wheat is then to be gathered into God's barn, referring to their place in God's kingdom. This time of delay in which the wheat and the tares grow together was new revelation. You see, the Jews thought, even John the Baptist thought, that when the Messiah came, he would immediately cut down the rebels in judgment. And immediately, he would usher in the kingdom. And which he would have done, by the way, if Israel had repented. But no one saw a delay in the Messiah setting up his kingdom. Once he came on the scene. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist speaking here. Even now. Now, note the emphasis. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We're looking at this to happen now, John the Baptist says. Right now. No delay. Indeed, I baptize you with water. Under repentance, he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He's going to clean it out, clean house, and gather his wheat into the barn, into the kingdom. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wait, wait, even now. Even now. We're expecting delay. Even now. This, what we've seen in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming and judging and setting up his case, it, it, This is going to happen right now. That's what John the Baptist thought. He's expecting this to happen right away. He did not see delay coming. But on the nation of Israel's rejection of Christ, now Christ presents further kingdom insight showing there is going to be a delay. The official inauguration of the kingdom is being delayed. And he shows us what is happening in the interim in, relation to the, in relationship to the coming kingdom. Namely, the wheat and the tares are growing together. Yes, we're still building towards the kingdom, but the issue is who's going to be there, the wheat, and who's not going to be there, ultimately, the tares. And they're growing side by side in this interim. The wheat and the tares grow together and, and will be sorted out at the second coming, in which Christ brings judgment on the rebels, the tares, and brings his people, the wheat, into the kingdom. And I want to just camp here for just a moment. Note this very carefully. Note the word until in verse 30, which indicates a delay. You have this mingled condition until. It's not going to be as John the Baptist initially thought. It's not going to happen right now. No, there's a a mingled condition until. There will be a delay before the final judgment and the setting up of the kingdom. John the Baptist referred to. But it will come eventually. Jesus very clearly in his interpretation, again, jumping ahead to next week, verse 40 therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. So we don't have to wonder. He interpreted this for us. Clearly, there's a delay. This isn't going to happen right now. This is, this is being put on hold until the end of this age. A footnote here. Some have taken this parable to teach that since the wheat and the tares grow together, that we shouldn't take any action in the church regarding unbelievers' functioning in our midst in a way that is harmful. But this flies in the face of so much New Testament teaching which tells us to be vigilant and discerning and to earnestly contend for the faith and not allow false teachers or unbelievers to have sway in the body. Note that in view here, The field is the world and not the church. Yes, in the world, the sons of the kingdom live side by side with the sons of the wicked one. But that does not mean we should not constantly be on guard regarding the flock of God. In fact, Paul instructs the elders in particular to do this very thing. In Acts chapter 20, he's talking to the elders. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Watch out, watch out. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. You know what shepherds do? They watch out for the flock. They care for the flock. But part of their responsibility is to watch out, to guard, to protect, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They don't care about the flock. they got a self-agenda. Also from among yourselves... Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. I want my own little following. It's really kind of about me. He says, therefore, watch. Watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. This is very serious. Guarding the flock from false teachers is night and day. Diligence. Yes, it is true that God's kingdom people and, and phony professors grow together in the world, which is all the more reason the church must ever remain vigilant. That the tares don't cause havoc in the body of Christ, which is what they want to do. Satan planted tares are everywhere, so we must be diligent to watch night and day, as Paul emphasized. Now, our job is not to destroy unbelieving tares, but we do have to watch out for them and protect the flock. God will in due time destroy the weeds. But in the meantime we are to realize the constant threat and watch out for the well-being of God's people. Ed Glasscock says this, This does not prohibit evicting heretics from assemblies of believers or exercising church discipline, but it does prohibit executing those assumed to be weeds. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) We are not executing people today, although uh, some of the Reformers did do this. I think they, took, they should have studied this parable just a little further. The mystery in Matthew 13 that is revealed is that there is now to be a time of delay in the actual establishment of the kingdom. The parables in Matthew 13 don't change anything about the Messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. It merely shows that there is now going to be an interlude before it is set up on earth and tells us what God is doing in the world in preparation for the kingdom, namely saving people who will be the sons of the kingdom. That's the great kingdom work that's happening today. A new truth, a key new truth, the parables reveal about the kingdom, is the timing of its coming, which is now delayed and consequently what God is now doing in the present age in relation to the coming kingdom. You see, the Jews did not see two comings. The Messiah comes, he sets up the kingdom. So, oh, no, 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 that's not how it is. Further kingdom insight is the Messiah comes, presents the kingdom, but then there's an interlude. And then he comes the second time to bring in the kingdom. This is further kingdom insight revealed in the parables. So the parable served to reveal new kingdom truth that the messianic kingdom would not be established in relation to Christ's first coming. Rather, there would be a delay which would be followed by a second coming. And that was new revelation. Dr. Michael Vlock says this. Yet this period between the two comings is related to the kingdom program. There exists a growing nucleus of people called sons of the kingdom who have believed the word of the kingdom. But the kingdom itself will not be established until the second coming of Jesus. So two kingdom insights in particular are revealed in this parable of the wheat and the tares. First, the inauguration of the kingdom has been put on hold. Second, during this time of delay, God is bringing people to himself who will be citizens in the kingdom. And at the same time, Satan plants diabolical counterfeits to try and disrupt God's work through his people. Again, Locke says, Two extremes must be avoided. First, it is wrong to deny any connection between the kingdom and the present age. The kingdom program is related to the present age in regard to the message of the kingdom and the growth of kingdom citizens. Second, it is incorrect to hold the kingdom reign itself has been established in this age. That will occur at Jesus' second coming. I just want to say something here. Amen. I wish, I wish just, just a few more theologians had this straight. Most of them are completely off when it comes to the parables here. Verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." Still, another related parable of the same kind is now being put forth. Here, the emphasis is on the outward phenomenal growth of the kingdom program, in the sense of people joining the movement during the time of kingdom delay. Now, some have objected that the mustard seed is not actually the smallest of all seeds, but the fact is, it was the smallest seed commonly used by farmers in this context. And it was proverbially used to denote smallness. Again, Jesus uses it in Matthew 17 20. Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, uh, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, etc., etc., mustard seed, very, very small. You see it there? <laughs> Barely, right? It's small, very small. The emphasis here is on the phenomenal growth of a tiny mustard seed into the growth of a tree. Mustard shrubs can grow as high as 15 feet and therefore illustrate growth from something very small to something very large, comparatively speaking. The mustard seed here represents the kingdom message. So the reference here is to the spread and growth of the kingdom message prior to the kingdom actually being established. Now remember, all these parables in my view, are giving further kingdom insight related to the period of delay, the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The kingdom movement, which began very small with just Jesus and his band of faithful followers. In fact, Jesus called them little flock in Luke twelve thirty-two, And they were so insignificant that the Roman historians of the time largely failed to even reference the movement. Yet Jesus shows in this parable that this movement would become something very large. In view here is the big tent of what we commonly call Christendom in the broad sense of the word. Although it started small, it has developed into a big movement. Again, the emphasis here is on the outward movement that will take place during the time of delay, which includes the present time in which we live. Completely consistent with the emphasis on phenomenal growth is this parable. Today we see that professing Christendom has grown into the largest religion in the world. Uh, Note this diagram. Okay, who has the biggest, uh, largest amount of people in the world today? Well, it would happen to be Christendom. Christendom by, no, no question, we're the winners. 31% Christians, followed by Muslims. They're working on wanting to take over everything, you know. Uh, peace for the Muslims is when we take over. Uh, and so, yeah, they got 23. And then, you know, we got uh, others here. But really, what I want to emphasize with you is, yes, Christendom has grown into a very large movement just as illustrated here in this parable. Now, some have tried to make the birds symbolize evil agents comparable to the tares in the previous parable, and that is possible. However, it may simply serve to emphasize the growth and size of the tree, which is now able to sustain birds. Again, generally, uh, there is one main point of emphasis being made in a parable, and one must not press obscure details too far. The Old Testament saw the kingdom in full-blown majesty, But it did not see the gradual development of the kingdom program in any sense. So this was new insight. But we should note that big in this case is not necessarily good. People think, well, look, God is blessing. Look at the masses here. Now, if you're going by that, you're going to go to Joel Osteen's church. I mean, seriously, if you're just going by numbers, that's so deceptive. It's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, what about Jesus when he says to the disciples, Will you also go away? I guess Jesus just didn't happen to be seeing revival then. The blessing of God was not on his ministry. Please! This emphasis on tremendous growth builds on the fact that only a minority will receive the word with a good heart, as seen in the parable of the sower and the soils. This parable on phenomenal growth is sandwiched right between an emphasis on tares and the next parable, which is on leaven which would indicate that the outward growth in view is merely outward and largely nominal do not be deceived outward growth is not necessarily indicative of spiritual life or spiritual well-being now we do expect living things to grow and Christ did promise that he will build his church and he will but Kingdom teaching is there's not going to be nearly as many people in the kingdom as you think. He started with that parable with the sower and the soils. Verse 33 Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all, un, it was all unleavened. Until it was all leavened, rather. Till it was all leavened. Now, most everyone agrees that the parable of the mustard seed. Involving great growth in verses 31 and 32. And the parable about leaven here in verse 33 are very closely tied together. Almost everybody agrees with this. Now there is debate as to whether leaven here should be understood in the sense of a positive, ever-expanding influence of the gospel. Or whether it should be understood negatively as a type of corrupting evil influence. Perpetuated by false teachers who are propagating a compromised gospel. Well, leaven almost always in the Bible represents evil. With very few exceptions. I mean, you might find an exception in Leviticus chapter 7, but apart from that, you'd be hard-pressed to find an exception. However, in Jesus' teaching ministry, leaven everywhere else totally consistent, everywhere else, represents evil. Jesus warned of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He warned of the leaven of Herod. So in the, and also in the rest of the New Testament, leaven consistently represents evil. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, through eight, it speaks of the, the leaven of malice and wickedness. Galatians 5, 9 uses leaven in reference to false teaching. So consistently, as used by Jesus and the New Testament writers, leaven represents either evil doctrine or evil behavior. There's no other exception in the New Testament unless it be here. And I don't think this is an exception. I would argue that consistency indicates that the leaven in this parable represents the influence of evil, consistent with how Jesus used it everywhere else. As the outward kingdom movement, if you will, people say, we're followers of Christ. Oh yeah, we're followers of Christ. All of Christendom is saying they're followers of Christ. Everybody's saying this. They're saying, we're, we're all disciples. As the outward kingdom Movement grows larger and larger, along with that growth comes a leavening influence of evil that in the end permeates the whole of Christendom. And that is exactly what we have seen. Warren Wearsby, the mustard seed illustrates the false outward expansion of the kingdom while the leaven illustrates the inward development of false doctrine and false living. Note the leaven is hid. It's hid. Which would be consistent with deceptive, sinister activity in keeping with an enemy, sowing tares. The scripture indicates a growing apostasy at the end of the church age which will culminate in a false church that in the end will be wed to the Antichrist. Stanley Toussaint. This parable reveals the fact that evil will run its course and dominate the new age. But it also indicates that when the program of evil has been fulfilled, the kingdom will come. This is indicated by the use of the preposition, until. The parable of the mustard seed indicated what the program of the kingdom would appear to be in the eyes of men. The parable of leaven gives God's view of it. The scripture teaches that indeed evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. And that it eventuates into full-grown apostasy. In which many professing Christians will no longer endure sound doctrine. For this reason, the Bible describes these last days as perilous times. In Luke 18:8, 8, Jesus said, "When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth?" What an interesting question. When the Son of Man comes, will he, find, will he really find faith on the Earth? And this question actually, more accurately, has the definite article. So the question literally says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find the faith on the earth? Referring to the whole faith, those holding to the whole counsel of God. That's what he's looking for. Well, kingdom truth, sowed by Christ, will bring forth growth in the interval between his first and his second advent. However, along with that growth, Of the movement also comes a leavening process that brings widespread compromise and apostasy. This is the state of things today as we are living in the last days of the church age. These parables flow in the development of truth related to the kingdom. And let me summarize for you. The kingdom has been put on hold, but God's kingdom program continues on in the sense of people becoming sons of the kingdom by way of saving faith. Only a remnant of those who hear actually respond with a true saving faith that bears lasting fruit. As the movement develops, there are many counterfeit followers involved. The movement becomes large, but also compromised. All of this has proven true and is an accurate portrayal of last days' Christendom. Verse 34 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. These are secret kingdom insights that have not been revealed. After this. You can't find them in the Old Testament. They didn't know about the time of delay. That's all new. It's all new. It's where we live. In this context, where he quotes here in in 35 uh, from the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, that is a quote from Psalm 78 too. In this context of rejection, Jesus addressed the crowds consistently in the form of parables. At this point, this defined his public ministry in relation to the masses. And this method of ministry was a fulfillment of prophecy as spoken by Asaph in Psalm 78. Now, it's good to go back and read Psalm 78 and study Psalm 78 in light of what's being said here. You see, the main theme of Psalm 78, which is a long psalm, by the way, it depicts God's faithfulness to His people Israel in spite of their disobedience. And He presents a pattern of disobedience all through that psalm. The patterns of history recalled in Psalm 78 without proper interpretation might simply be seen as one long pattern of disobedience. But the writer, the writer sees God behind it all and sees God's unwavering faithfulness as he shepherds Israel to a determined end. By way of application, even though God's kingdom program has been put on hold, yet at the same time, God is faithful to continue building for his kingdom in bringing people to faith, whereby they are made to be the sons of the kingdom. So, in this sense, the kingdom program is continuing to go forward, in which the kingdom will one day be populated by those coming to saving faith. The kingdom message will not fail. God's plan, purpose, and kingdom program centered in Jesus Christ will ultimately triumph. So, what do we see? Summary, as far as what we've looked at here this morning, The kingdom was offered. Yes, it was, but it was rejected. In the rejection of the king, the kingdom has been put on hold, delayed. What do we see? There is a remnant, sons of the kingdom, uh, but there is counterfeits that infiltrate during this delay. There is growth of Christendom outwardly. Lots of people claim, I'm I'm in, I'm a follower, lots of groups. But there's also a thorough leavening where do you go? I mean, there's real strong Bible teaching churches all over the place in this country we call America with 70% Christians, right? I mean, we all know that most of us are real Christians, right? Please! There's a leavening process, thoroughly leavened. But in the end, God is faithful. He is faithful. He's faithful to build his church, he's faithful to work to his sovereign ends as far as what he's doing in relationship to the kingdom. Well, an overview of Christ's parabolic teaching, giving us further kingdom insights, what have we seen so far? Let me summarize. Because Israel rejected her Messiah, Lord, the kingdom offer has been temporarily put on hold. However, in this interim of kingdom delay, God is still accomplishing his ultimate kingdom objectives. A remnant of people are still responding to the lordship kingdom message. But there are also tares... Who are used in an effort to disrupt God's kingdom work, the growth of the kingdom movement, kingdom movement, has been phenomenal, but parallel to great growth has been an ever-expanding leavening process that results in widespread and thorough apostasy. But through it all, God is still sovereign, and he is faithful to accomplish his purposes relative to the coming kingdom. We might call the big tent of Christendom in general a kingdom movement in the sense that all of these people claim to be followers of Christ who are ultimately going into the kingdom. But Jesus is saying, wait a minute here. There's also this leavening process. The, the greatest sectors of Christendom today are leavened with false doctrine through and through. There are many aberrant gospels. You understand this, right? There's a sacramental gospel, there's a lordless gospel. There's a baptismal regeneration gospel. There's a prosperity gospel. There's a subjective experiential gospel. And on and on. There is lots and lots and lots of leaven to where the leavening process is very thorough. The devil is very good at what he does. But the true gospel is all about Jesus and him alone. You want to go into the kingdom? How do you get there? Well, Jesus told Nicodemus... If you want to see the kingdom you have to be born again. But you can't make yourself born again. This is the work of God. Only God can cause a person to have rebirth. But he continues on there to challenge Nicodemus in terms of faith. John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born of God. You have to believe. And nobody can do your believing for you, just like nobody can do your dying for you, right? Jesus did dying for us, died on the cross for us, took our penalty. But no one can do this for you. You have to personally come to Christ. That's why the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now is the accepted time. Right now, God's bringing a people to himself for the kingdom. When we get there, when Christ comes, are you going to be in the kingdom? That's the ultimate issue. I hope you're not a phony Hope you're not a terror. I can't really tell, you know. I mean, only God ultimately sorts it out in the end. He's the final judge. We are fruit inspectors, and yet we're limited. Come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Become a son of the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did we get right? God provided a Savior. Yes, the Messiah was coming to deliver physically, physically, And take these people into the kingdom. But first he delivers spiritually. By way of the cross. Died for our sins. Was buried. And rose again. If you don't know Christ. Now is the accepted time. Come to him even today. If you'd like to talk further. I'll be up front afterwards. Me and the elders. uh, Come and talk to us. Let's stand and have our closing song.